Turn to Revelation 14 if you do have your Bible. And, um, you know, normally I keep my notes on my iPad. I ran right out, I ran, ran, I got here from home and I left my big iPad at home in uh, Anita. Of course, I've been here quite a while, but I asked her, I said, can you just pick up my iPad from my office upstairs at the, at the house? I left it and I had my notes on my computer here. And normally I transfer that to my iPad, which I use to teach from. And so uh, she said she would. She, I was waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. And uh, I called her. I said, I got to get downstairs. I got my computer. got to get it hooked up. She said, oh, well, your, your iPad's already down there. <laughs> so I didn't have time. I didn't have time to transfer everything. But I tell you what I did have time to do. I had time to print it off the old-fashioned way. <laughs> And so I was just looking at the size font. You know, the font size of my notes has gotten increasingly increment larger, you know. And uh, pretty, pretty soon, I'm sure it'd probably be just one or two pages, or words per page. Uh, but I've got those here. But Revelation 14 is where we are tonight. You know, just to kind of sum up where we were, the curtain closed on the previous act of the drama at the end of chapter 13. And the situation looked really bleak. It looked dark, just to say it mildly. You had the evil beast from the sea described in the first part of chapter 13. And we saw that as being the the Antichrist and his system, the final world government. The last part of chapter 13 described the beast from the earth that John saw, which we saw... uh, Describe the false prophet who also took center stage and together you have this diabolical duo who are empowered really by the dragon and so you have this unholy trinity of sorts being described in chapter 12, chapter 13, uh, Satan and his antichrist figure together with the false minister of propaganda known as the false prophet who leads the world to get behind the beast, to worship the beast, to make an image of the beast. At the end of chapter 13, described the mark of the beast. And we talked about that mysterious number, 666, and how so many have speculated what that number might be and how that mark might apply and, you know, does it represent the name of any current world leader? And I simply say all of that is just useless speculation. Be foolish to try to go down those rabbit trails. But that six really is the number of man from a biblical perspective. And three sixes, this is just simply one more way in which Satan tries to mimic God in his triune character, Father, Son, and Spirit. And you see that dragon, Antichrist, false prophet. And so 666, six is the best that man can come up with on his own apart from God. Seven is the number of completion. It's the divine number. And so ultimately what I think you see, at least symbolically in this number, 666, is that even the very best of man and what man can build without God is doomed to to be destroyed. It's destined for failure. Man is not a complete octave apart from the work of grace in his life. And you think about seven, how that is the number of God. God created the world in six days. Man was created on day six, but God rested on the seventh. All of creation entered into his rest until Adam and Eve sinned against God. Uh, You think about the colors of the rainbow. You remember from school, Roy G. Biff, seven, And it's just, again, it's just one more uh, indicator that seven is the number of God, six is the number of man. So this is just man at his worst, uh, deceived by the enemy. And so that's how chapter 13 kind of come to a close. If the story ended there, we would think that evil sort of wins the day and that God had forgotten his promises to rescue, redeem, save his people. He'd forsaken his people. I'm glad that Revelation doesn't end with the beast and the false prophet ruling and dominating this present world system. That's not how the story ends, men and women. 
Now, that's where the man system's headed, but that's not how it's all going to end. One person has said it this way, as the house lights dim and the curtain parts for the next act in this apocalyptic saga, the tide begins to decisively turn. Instead of darkness and gloom, divine brilliance blazes on the stage. As the brutal beast and his lieutenant have been cleared from the scene, in their stead we see the glorious Lamb of God standing on Mount Zion with his elect saints. And you'll notice that's exactly how Revelation chapter 14 begins, where John says, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb. (laughs) In spite of all that's going on, the dragon who's deceived the nations, the Lamb is standing on Mount Zion. So, for a brief moment, chapter 14 is going to take us all the way to the end of the tribulation, where we're given a glimpse of the Lamb of God, or Jesus Christ, the King, who's standing on Mount Zion. So the theme of this chapter is is that of divine wrath that's coming upon the beast and his evil system that's described in the previous chapter. So John is showing us in this 14th chapter how the beast and his empire is destined to be destroyed. And so what this really represents, chapter 14 is kind of a breath of fresh air especially when you stack it up against all that we've seen thus far. Here we're given a vision of the triumphant Lamb of God and His redeemed people. And so the lesson then, just by way of introduction, we're given this glimpse of the Lamb of God standing on Mount Zion. And the lesson that we take away from this text is that God's grace and mercy belongs to the one who trusts Him while wrath awaits those who reject him. And so wrath is the theme of the chapter. And I want to speak from that subject tonight. God's wrath revealed. Wrath. I don't know what comes into your mind when you think about that term or when you think about the wrath of God as a divine attribute. You know, a lot of folks don't want to talk about the wrath of God and they think that that makes God out to be some kind of tyrant in the sky. And they think of wrath in terms of man's anger and angry outburst in traffic, road rage. You know, that's not what's being described when the scripture talks about the wrath of God. The wrath of God uh, is, is God's settled disposition against all that is contrary to his holy nature. It's his settled disposition against sin. So if we were to say grace, we we see grace in his dealings with man out of his, 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 his love, God is love, we read in 1 John, then wrath is his dealings with sinful man as an expression of his divine justice and his holiness. Now here's the thing everybody is going to either meet God in his grace or in his wrath. It's destined for man to have an appointment with a holy God. The Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die and after this, the judgment. And so you will meet God in his grace and that's only through faith in Jesus Christ, mind you. We're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Wrath has already been satisfied because of Christ's death in the sinner's place. And so Jesus absorbed the wrath of God for my sin as my substitute. So I've been saved from wrath. Okay? Uh, But for those who are not in Christ, they are exposed to the full force and fury of God's divine wrath. In fact, the scripture says in John's gospel that those who don't believe the Son, the wrath of God already abides on them. Now think about that. A person who doesn't know Jesus as their Savior, they're one heartbeat away, one breath away from meeting God in the fierceness of his wrath. That's why there ought to be a sense of urgency to our message to a lost and dying world that needs Jesus. 
So wrath is the theme of this chapter. And so we're given a picture here in this chapter of those who were saved from wrath, uh, those who were subject to wrath, and then ultimately the one who is sovereign in wrath. So that's kind of the outline for, for these 20 verses, and we're just going to work our way through the chapter tonight uh, point by point. But before I do that, why don't we answer this question? How does Revelation 14 kind of fit in with the overall chronology of the book? Okay, so keep this in mind. Not everything is in sequence or uh, chronological as you read through the book of Revelation. Uh, there are certain passages where there's, there's a parenthesis, a break in the action where uh, there's more detail given. Maybe we're going back and looking at the bigger narrative of history and God's dealings with humanity or we're you know, moving forward in the storyline. That's what those parenthetical passages do. And so we've still been in a parenthesis going all the way back to the end of chapter 11 with the sounding of the seventh trumpet judgment. So we saw this with the seventh seal. There was a break in the action. There was a, some parenthetical explanation that was given. Same thing's true here at the end of, of chapter 11. If you go back, what's the theme of the seventh trumpet? Well, verse 15 of chapter 11, seventh angel blew his trumpet. There were loud voices in heaven. And listen, here's the emphasis. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. And so just as the seventh seal gave way to the seven trumpet judgments, the seventh trumpet is going to give way to the seven bowl judgments. And the action will resume when we get to chapter 15 and 16 with the bowl judgments. But in chapter 12, chapter 13, and chapter 14, you know, we're kind of taking a, a step back and we're looking at really the whole sweep of human history and the long war against God that the dragon has been waging. We saw how that began in chapter 12. Chapter 13 shows us how it kind of manifests itself on earth and throughout human history and ultimately in the last days with the Antichrist and his evil empire and system, which by the way, the devil's always used the governments of man and the power structures of man to try to achieve his own rebellious purposes, to persecute the people of God. And Satan's always had his ministers of propaganda, like the false prophet described at the end of chapter 13, who want to peddle his lies. They have the appearance of the lamb, but they talk like the dragon. They seem harmless enough with their philosophy and ideology, but there's the hiss of the serpent if you're discerning enough to hear it, if you know the truth. That's the way Satan's always operated. But where's all this headed? Well, John's telling us here in chapter 14, the Lamb of God is one day going to stand upon his holy hill, Mount Zion. And his people will be present with him in his kingdom. So that's where we are in, in, in the story. So you'll notice in this chapter, um, to begin with, notice those who were saved from wrath. Look at verses 1 through 5. John says, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. They were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless." So unlike the previous chapter, the first person who captures John's attention here, it's not a beast with heads and horns or a beast that looked like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. No, those images we saw in chapter 13. Here, John is beholden to the one true lamb of God. And that's none other than Jesus Christ himself. 
And his identity as the lamb is held in contrast with the dragon-like character of the beast, the Antichrist. So here's what John is seeing. He's seeing the one who alone is uniquely qualified to rule the world. A lamb is, is something that's associated with sacrifice. Again, keep in mind the symbolic imagery in these chapters. A dragon, and you know how that's evil, and that's a fitting description of the serpent. Satan, a beast, the systems of man, the Antichrist, an evil dictator. A beast is a fitting symbol of, of such a personage. You know, a, a, a lamb that talked like a dragon, a deceptive character, that's a fitting symbol for false ideology, the false prophet. Well, here you've got the Lamb of God. And it's a fitting description of who Jesus Christ is. And so to John's Jewish audience, the lamb would no doubt bring to their mind all of those innocent little lambs throughout Israel's history that had been slain because of sin. Worship demanded sacrifice. Worship demanded that the, the blood of a substitute lamb be offered up in the worshiper's place because of sin. So every day in the temple you had little lambs whose throats were slit and the blood was spilt and applied to the altar and it was just a bloody reminder of the price of sin. You go all the way back to the Exodus from Egypt and the Passover lambs and all those lambs had to be killed and their blood had to be applied to the doorpost of the Israelite home and, and that way uh, those inside those homes would be spared from wrath and the final plague, when the destroyer would pass through the land, wherever the blood had been applied to the doorpost, those within that home were safe from wrath, saved from wrath. But wherever the blood had not been applied, well, they were exposed to the final plague and they were subject to wrath, weren't they? So you've got to keep this imagery in mind here as you read these verses. So notice a few things here. Those who are saved from wrath will first consider the place where they're gathered. Uh, John says in verse 1, he's, again, there's really three visions that make up this 14th chapter, and the first of which is verses 1 through 5. He says, I looked. He's being shown something. He says, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. So there's a specific place mentioned there in verse 1, Mount Zion. Now, all throughout Scripture, Mount Zion is, is descriptive of only one place on planet Earth. And you know where that is? It's the city of Jerusalem. Now, of course, in Hebrews, Mount Zion is referred to uh, in the figurative sense as it refers to the place, uh, heaven, and the throne of God. But I'm of the conviction that this is reference to the actual city of Jerusalem, Mount Zion, and of course, the 144,000 who are being referred to here, well, we've already met them just a few chapters back, if you remember, going back to chapter 7, where 12,000 were sealed from every tribe of Israel. And I'm of the conviction that these represent a Jewish believing remnant who are going to be uniquely preserved through the tribulation period. And they're going to be brought through the terrible, dark days of the tribulation. And when it's all said and done, they're going to stand with the Lamb of God on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. And so I believe that that's what's being referred to here. Notice they're, they're sealed by God. This is seen in contrast with the last few verses of chapter 13. Those who were worshipers of the Antichrist received his mark. In a sense, they were sealed by the Antichrist. They received the mark of the beast. It's where their allegiance was, you know, lie. But here, you've got this believing remnant. God says they're mine. Even in the midst of judgment, God's going to save a remnant for himself. And that's the way God's always acted all throughout human history, even in the darkest of days. You think about the Middle Ages and God had a believing remnant. And you think about Old Testament Israel and days of apostasy and idolatry and God had a believing remnant. And the same thing's going to be true in the last days, in the tribulation period. There's going to be a believing remnant who are preserved. So it's interesting that the, that the Lamb of God, he's standing upon Mount Zion. And this, by the way, is something that the Old Testament prophets look forward to. 
Every Jew longed for the day when the Messiah would rule and reign from David's throne and establish his, his, his kingdom and rule over the world. For example, the prophet Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 14. Scripture says, Behold, the day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle the city taken in exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. That is, I believe there's a remnant that God's going to preserve. Now listen to this. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. And on that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. The Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west by a wide valley. Then the Lord my God will come and all his holy ones with him. On that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea, half of them to the western sea. It will continue in summer as in winter, and the Lord will be king over the whole earth. And so that's the millennial kingdom, when Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning upon earth. So the fact that these 144,000 are standing with the Lamb on Mount Zion in Jerusalem, this is something that we can't emphasize enough. One person says it this way, this is the capstone prediction of all of Israel's Old Testament prophets. Isaiah 28, 16, thus says the Lord God, behold, I'm the one who's laid as a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of sure foundation. Isaiah 35, the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads, and they shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. So, so here you have this place in which these 144,000 are gathered together with the Lamb. This is, a, this is a preview of coming attractions. This is a glimpse of what will happen when Jesus Christ returns, when he stands upon Mount Zion. Now, again, these 144,000, they're sealed. That is, they're protected. God's going to preserve them. And you know, that's a theme that you often see throughout Scripture too, how God preserves a remnant in the midst of terrible circumstances. Uh, For example, uh, he delivers Lot and his family when he brings destruction to the city of Sodom. Or Noah and his family before that, they're spared, they're saved. The same floodwaters of wrath that drowned Noah's generation were the same waters that lifted Noah and his family to safety. Uh, What about Rahab, who's spared judgment that comes upon uh, Jericho? Or all of Israel's firstborn children, how they're safe from wrath, again, when the blood's applied to the doorpost of their homes there in Egypt, the Passover. Daniel, his friends are preserved in the midst of a fiery furnace. (laughs) And the same fires that destroyed Nebuchadnezzar's henchmen, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego emerge from the fire unscathed not even the smell of smoke on their clothes. Why? Because there's a fourth man in the fire with them. And we know that's Jesus. So here you see this same thing. God's preserving a remnant in the midst of such terrible wrath. And that's the place they gather, Mount Zion. The praise they offer. Verses two and three, John describes a voice that he heard from heaven. Could only be described like thunder or the rush of a mighty waterfall. You've been to Niagara Falls? Have you ever stood at the base of the falls? Have you done the made of the mist trip, you know, to the base of the falls? Isn't it just amazing, just the sound and the volume of the water? You know, last year, Anita and I were there in February. I was like, it was like a, a popsicle, ice everywhere, but it still was just amazing. I had my phone, we like to froze to death trying to record it and capture the sound, but the video I recorded just didn't do it justice. John's hearing this voice now from heaven. So notice verse 2, he's hearing something from heaven. He sees the lamb standing on Mount Zion with the 144,000, but he hears a voice now from heaven like the roar of a waterfall, like the sound of thunder. 
The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps, and notice that they were singing. Aren't you glad that Christianity is a singing faith? We are singing people. We ought to be. You say, preacher, you ain't heard me sing. (laughs) It doesn't matter if you've been saved. You've got something to sing about. Make a joyful noise to the Lord. Because it's the heart that God's looking at. And listen, there's nothing I love better than to hear a congregation of people singing. Singing. Worshiping. That's what John is hearing here, man. They're praising God. Verse 3 says they're singing a new song before the throne, which no one could learn except the 144,000. Now, there's a lot of speculation about this, but Henry Morris, in his commentary, says that they have something unique to sing, unlike anyone else. And it's the fact that they have been miraculously preserved through the worst time in human history. And so in that sense, they've got a unique testimony of grace. We've got a testimony of grace as God's redeemed people. Everyone has a story and a song to sing. But God's going to do something miraculous in the preservation of this Jewish remnant. And so there's a principle here, though, that applies to us. I really believe saints of all ages ought to sing, ought to worship, because that's the proper response When you consider who God is and you consider all that he's done in overcoming sin in your life and defeating the dragon and rescuing you and saving you, you got something to sing about. And then notice the purity then that they possessed. I won't spend much time here. We looked at this uh, back when we were looking at the 144,000 from chapter 7. But verse 3 they're, they're described in some specific ways. They're said to have, they're redeemed. You look at what's said here, they've kind of, they, they're, 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 um, they adhere to a standard of holiness and purity. And redemption is always the basis for a godly manner of living. So the one who belongs to God will behave for God. We don't behave in order to belong. We belong and therefore we behave. It's the same thing we see in 1 John where righteous character produces righteous conduct. You're not saved because of your righteous conduct. No, because you're saved, you will demonstrate righteous conduct. So notice how their righteous conduct is then described after the fact that they've been redeemed has been mentioned. They're undefiled. Verse 4, they're they're chaste. This perhaps could refer to the fact that these are 144 specific Jewish evangelists who were chaste. Or it could even refer to something, um, you know, somewhat symbolic that perhaps what's being described here is the fact that they're just unpolluted from the world and the world system. I hold to the view that these are Jewish evangelists who God has uniquely preserved for the purpose of being a witness throughout the tribulation. We saw that back in chapter 7, and therefore they're pure, they're chaste, virgins. But there's a principle here that I think applies that they're, they're unpolluted from the world and its system. They've not bought into the lies of the beast. They've not bought into the agenda of Antichrist. Rather than blindly following the world, notice they follow the Lamb of God wherever he goes. That speaks of their discipleship. By the way, shouldn't that be said of my life and your life now, even in this age? Rather than getting so swept up with the world and the world's way of living and the world's way of processing life and problems in life, we ought to follow the Lamb of God wherever he goes. We march to the beat of heaven's drum, not the world's. Verse 5 says they're blameless. No lie was found on their lips. So they testify fully to the truth. Now, here's the thing. When you think about uh, even in the midst of a world where sin is running rampant, things are coming apart at the seams, and the Antichrist and the dragon and the false prophets seem to be having a heyday, God has a righteous remnant whom he will preserve. He's taking a world that's fit for the furnace, but he's extracting gold from that world as as if it's been refined in the fire. (laughs) It's true of every generation of humanity, no matter how dark or difficult. And it'll certainly be true of the tribulation period. Now, 
That's those who are saved from wrath. Now, the second vision in the chapter, verse 6, what about those who are subject to wrath? John says, then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. And another angel, a second followed saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Now listen to this. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest, day or night, these worshipers of the beast in its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. So you'll notice here there's really three angels who have three pronouncements of judgment upon a world in rebellion against God, a world that's subject to wrath. And these three angels have special messages to, the deliver, to deliver to the world. And how they do that? Well, all of the wherefores and therefores and the details aren't given, but we're just simply told that they declare their message to the world. One, the first angel flying overhead has a message to declare to the world uh, that um, it's, it's, it's the eternal gospel that he's preaching. Fear God, give him glory. The hour of his judgment has come. So what you see with these three angels, they're speaking the words of heaven to every earth dweller. And almost everything that they say will be in opposition to all the assumptions that are held by the world. <laughs> You look at their messages and you see how they contradict what the people of the world ultimately believe about man's origin and man's problem and ultimately man's salvation. Which, by the way, isn't that the three main areas where the dragon loves to deceive people? Where do I come from and where am I headed? The devil wants you to be deceived about those most basic questions. Or, what's wrong in the world? The devil wants you to be deceived, be deceived about what ultimately is wrong with the world. And how do you fix what's wrong with the world? Where does salvation ultimately lie? Satan wants to deceive people in these three areas. Origin, man's problem, and man's salvation. What are the lies that he likes to peddle? Well, think about it. As far as origins are concerned, you've got ideas that were really just some accident. We're just the product of some evolutionary blind process and we've just evolved over millions and millions and millions of years and the atheist's math is nothing plus nothing equals everything. And when you just simply boil it down to just such simple logic, it's a wonder that anybody would believe that. But they do and why do they believe that? Well, because they've been deceived by the evil one. And because they possess a sinful heart, which is really the second issue. What's wrong with the world? Man has fallen. Man is sinful. Man is alienated from God, cut off from the light, cut off from the life of God. And so his default position is one of animosity and rebellion toward God and God's truth. And so he's going to look for lies to justify what he already wants to believe. There is no God. I am God. And what's wrong with the world? Well, you don't worship me. You don't give me what I want. Who are you to judge me? Well, how do you get saved? What's man's version of salvation? What does, the, what does the evil one say about salvation? Ultimately, what's his lie? Well, 
There's a Superman who's coming and he's going to arrive on the scene and you just need to get behind him and his agenda and don't protest. See how the enemy's just so deceptive. And so you've got these three angels that are going to be dispatched from heaven and they're going to have something different to say. And the first one, his message is one of salvation. And it's centered in creation and his pulpit is the sky. And his, notice his message goes out to every nation, tribe, language, and people. Christianity is not exclusively a Western idea. It's not the religion of the West. No, God has an agenda in mind where he wants, and he is going to redeem people from every nation, tribe, and tongue under the banner and the lordship of his son. And this message reflects God's heart and it's going out to everybody. And he says, fear God and give him glory. He's the one who's made the earth. He's the one ultimately who's creator and who's in charge. And man, what proof are they going to have of that in the last days when literally creation is kind of going to be undone with the stars falling from the sky and rivers turning to blood and all of that describing chaos and natural catastrophe. Listen, God is the one who's sovereign over creation. And all of that ought to get man's attention. So the message of the first angel is one that's centered around salvation urging the world to give God glory. Notice the message of the second angel. Verse eight says that this involves a pronouncement of judgment against Babylon the great. Babylon, again, this is a a symbolic way of referring to the government of the Antichrist. Babylon, you know the story of the Bible ultimately is a story of two cities. It's the city of Babylon, which is the city of man in rebellion against God, and it's the city of Jerusalem, the city of God. City of man, city of God. I think Augustine really captured this in in some of his writings centuries and centuries ago. We could go back to Genesis 11. We could see how after the days of the flood, man, united in rebellion against God, conspired to build a city and the tower, the heights of which reached into the heavens. And the name of that city was Babel or Babylon. And the tower was located on the plains of Shinar, the very place where Nebuchadnezzar many centuries later would set up his monument, the empire of Babylon. And, and, and folks, it's just a picture. All of that's happened in real time, but it's a picture of how the enemy tries to unite the world around this global agenda that man is his savior, that man can do it. That man can pull himself up by his own moral bootstraps and solve his problems. And that spirit of Babylon will manifest itself in the last days in a man, the Antichrist, and his system. But no matter how impressive a tower that man tries to build, it's always destined to fall. And so listen to the symbolism here. Fallen, fallen is man's tower. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. And just as Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream in Daniel 2, the smiting stone will strike the image of Babylon at its feet and the statue will crumble and the the stone will become a mountain that fills the entire earth. And what's that referring to? Well, Jesus is the stone. And the mountain that fills the whole earth is his kingdom of righteousness. So it's a decree against the Antichrist and his system, Babylon. But then you've got the third angel and the message of the third angel, verse nine, it's directed against those who worship the beast and receive its mark. And this is a message of condemnation and wrath. Those who worship the beast blindly follow the beast and reject the gospel, their destiny will be an eternal hell as it's described in verses 10 and 11. So the wrath of God will be given full expression as those who reject him are tormented with fire and with sulfur. And notice the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever and they have no rest. Skip Heitzig, listen to this. He says, this angel clears up some false assumptions, namely that hell is not real, 
that hell is not forever and that hell is merely a metaphor for all the unpleasant things that happen to us on earth. Jesus said that at the end of time, he would say to the unredeemed, depart from me, ye cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. It's Matthew 24, verse 41. And let me tell you something. You know who talked about hell more than anybody else in the Bible? It was the Lord Jesus. He described it as a place of unquenchable, unending fire where the worm dieth not, and the pain never stops gnawing, a horrible pit full of wretched people separated from God, gnashing their teeth, and that's the biblical picture of hell. And here, John is, is, is just simply being shown how it's going to be full of restless people who refuse to enter God's rest. Now think about that. Restlessness. What is it that leads man to pursue the things that he pursues in life? Is it not just this sense of restlessness in his soul? Why is it that he turns to his addictions? It's because some substance can bring me a little bit of rest that I so long for within, but no matter how much I drink, no matter how much I smoke, no matter how much pornography I view, it doesn't satisfy my soul. I'm still restless, and I'm worse for it. No matter how much power or prestige or applause that I tend to get for myself, it never satisfies me because there's always one hand clap I didn't get, one position or promotion that I didn't receive. It's just this restlessness that's descriptive of man and his existence. Why is that? It's because when man sinned against God, all of creation that was perfectly in his rest now is restless because of the fall and restless because of sin. But Jesus said, come unto me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden. He said, I will give you rest. And when he suffered and died for my sin on the cross, that's why he said, it is finished. So now, by putting my faith and trust in him, I enter into his rest. And he's the one who gives me his rest. And he alone satisfies the restless wandering of my soul. And that's why verses 12 and 13 here say that for those who have faith in Jesus, those who endure, those who keep his commands, those who trust in him, they will be blessed in eternity. Now listen to this statement. Blessed are the dead. (laughs) Hold on there, preacher. What did you just say? That's a strange statement, isn't it? Blessed are the dead. But look at that. Verse 13, that's what it says. And it only makes sense when you see it with this qualification, who die in the Lord. Blessed are they who die in the Lord. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. And they're blessed and held close by God. They're given rest from all their labors. Their deeds will follow them. And that is, their lives will not have been in vain. Their works carry on into the kingdom of the Lamb. (laughs) That's why anything you do in Jesus, it's not going to burn up. It's not going to vanish. It's not going to disappear. You know, you can actually lay up treasures in heaven that will be there when you get there waiting on you. Think about that. What I live for in this life matters then, doesn't it? Ultimately, I don't want to waste my life for stuff that's only going to burn up. Oh, I'm about to preach. (laughs) You know what often gets us so upset in church? We all get at odds a lot of times. It's over the stuff ultimately that's going to burn one day. Tangible things, buildings and monuments and ways of doing things that we've done since Noah and his family got off the ark. All the while, what really matters is the things that we can lay up in eternity, right? That's what matters. So listen, blessed are those who die in the Lord and those who've lived for the Lord and those who've sent their treasure on and and have invested in eternal realities. All of that's going to be waiting on you when you get there. That's just a good word. So you've got those who are saved from wrath, those who are subject to wrath, and then ultimately the last part of the chapter gives us a picture of one who is sovereign in wrath. Now, my time is gone. Let me give this to you real quick. 
John says, then I looked and behold a white cloud seated on the cloud, one like the son of man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap for the hour to reap has come for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth and the earth was reaped. And then another angel came out of the temple in heaven. He too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. He called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle, gather the clusters from the vine of the earth for its grapes are ripe. And so the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great wine press of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. Four feet high, roughly 200 miles long. Now that's something. Now, there's some interesting imagery here at the end of chapter 14, but ultimately it points us to the one who is sovereign in judgment, the one who's sovereign in wrath, and of course, this son of man figure who's described in verse number 14, the identity of the harvester, you should know that as being Jesus. The son of man, the son of man seated on the clouds of heaven, a golden crown on his head, a sharp sickle in his hand. Much of this is imagery that comes from Daniel chapter 7 with the Son of Man who was, he presents himself to the Ancient of Days and to this Son of Man is given a kingdom and dominion that's everlasting, that, that all peoples, nations, tribes, and tongues should serve him. So this is a picture of Jesus Christ who's coming to establish his kingdom. He's the harvester, and the harvest is that of judgment. Clouds are associated with the glory of God. So here you have Jesus taking the dominion which is his. And the fact that he's holding a sickle in his hand, this is a testament to the fact that judgment is in his hands. You know what a sickle is. A Middle Eastern sickle looked something like this. It was an instrument in, in, in um, Israelite culture, the agrarian economy. When it was harvest time, the workers would be out in the fields and they would be gathering the, the clusters of grain and swinging the sickle it was time to harvest the grain. It was time to cut the stalks. So, so notice that this son of man figure, he's, he's going to swing the sickle. And so that means judgment is going to be swift. And that's kind of the idea here. And the interpretation of the harvest. You, you actually see two harvests here being described. One involving grain, the other involving grapes. That word translated fully ripe in verse 15, it's a word that means overripe. The idea is that the world is overripe for judgment, overdue for judgment. It's become overgrown in sin and God's about to mow it all down. You know, Matthew 13, the kingdom parables, Jesus made it abundantly clear that now is not the age for reaping, now is the age of sowing. You know, that's the age in which we live. It's a time to sow the seed of the gospel. But the time is going to come at the end of the age. It's going to be a, a time for reaping. And in that day, the angels of God will bring forth their sickles, reap a harvest of judgment on the wicked world. And so this second harvest is that of grapes, and that just testifies to the severity of judgment. The imagery is that of a wine press. Let me show you a picture here of a Middle Eastern wine press. What would happen, clusters of grapes would be taken and put in that flat place where there were little channels in that flat place, but two reservoirs with channels from that flat place that flowed into those reservoirs. And so whenever the farmers would bring their clusters of grapes, they would have folks who would be there barefoot walking around that flat place pressing all of those grapes, crushing all of those grapes, and, and the juice would be extracted from all of those grapes, it would flow through the channel into those, those vats there where the juice was collected. A little bit more of a clearer picture or diagram, you can kind of see it there. That's the imagery here at the end of this chapter. So, so just as the crushing of the grape produces the juice... 
The crushing of sinful humanity under judgment produces blood up to the horse's battle. So what you have here, this is an allusion to a great battle that's coming. Known elsewhere as Armageddon. And the details of that battle are going to be given in chapter 19. So folks, listen, wrath, God is not a God to be trifled with. He's not a God to be trifled with. Better to meet him in mercy now, only to meet him in wrath and judgment then. Why don't you stand as we pray this evening? You know, a couple weeks ago, we sang the battle hymn of the Republic. Remember Parker telling you the story about that song? And You know, Julia Howe, she took the lyrics to that song from this chapter, Revelation 14. He's trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He will loose the fateful lightning of his terrible swift sword, but his truth is marching on. But aren't you glad that wrath is something that the child of God never has to fear? Because we've been saved from the wrath which is to come. But it should burden us for our friends and for our neighbors that don't know Jesus. It ought to burden us enough to verbally share the gospel and love our neighbors and do all we can to reach people while we have time and opportunity. So, Lord, thank you for your word tonight. And God, these are sobering verses. Verses that talk about wrath and judgment and hell. And Lord, we live in a culture that would want to scoff at the idea and ridicule the idea. We think of fire and brimstone type preaching as being outdated and unsophisticated. But yet that's just one more lie from the evil one to blind us to the seriousness of sin and the true nature of God's character. So, Lord, may we preach the truth in love and point the world to the only one who can save the world, and that's the Lamb who bore the full weight of divine wrath so that we could be saved from sin. And, Lord, tonight we love you And we make our prayer in Jesus' precious name. Amen.